Get Sorry about that. the delay here, Nathan. We'll no, no, it's fine. I've, I've literally just, um, uh, uh, I am covered in, or the lower half of me is covered in mud. I've actually changed my top because I've just come up <laughs> from trail biking. So, uh, so um, you ride bikes with Oliver Cronk, is that what I understand? Uh, ah. Actually, that's the only time, it's the first and only time Oliver and I have actually ridden together because Oliver is much more of a road biker and i'm a mountain biker so what i hear you saying is um oliver likes the easy biking and um... Welcome to another episode of Consultants Saying Things. I'm Chris Lockhart, joined today by uh, Carol Hamilton, Phil Yanoff, and a new face. His name is Nathan Alchin, and Nathan's joining us from London, I believe. And it looks like, and what looks like the, the Royal Library somewhere there, <laughs> Nathan. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, having been on quite a few Zoom calls now, I got tired of the default backgrounds. And um, if you ever been to our house? Uh, we we have um, pretty much uh, bookcases in every room because uh, my uh, wife and I have a love of books. So this felt like a natural choice for me. Well, perfect. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, just a little bit about you um, before we get into the topic. Um, you know, I've, I've met you through some of the sort of the online um, sort of the architecture and consulting communities um, and mutual friends and acquaintances um, online. So can you just give us the, the one minute view of who, yeah, who is Nathan? Sure. So, uh, so I'm Nathan Alchin. Um, uh, I sound like a Brit, but actually I'm a Canadian uh, for historical reasons. Um, and I guess I'm a curious cyborg is probably how I might describe myself. Uh, so I studied life as a researcher in AI before sales and marketing got their hands on it. And then uh, since then, uh, natural move from there into architecture, operating models, management consultancy. Um, and my clients have been a freelance consultant for quite a long time now. Um, so my clients range from kind of the big four accountancy firms to uh, sort of SDG startups, which I'm doing a lot of work with at the moment. Well, Isn't awesome. That? I mean, I think, you know, some of the things that you and I have talked about in the past, um, I think it's a... It's going to be a good fit for this discussion. So the topic of the day, an interesting kind of discussion around, you know, are there or is there um, sort of a philosophy or a set of philosophies that, that we could use as frameworks for sort of managing and guiding our careers as consultants, um, you know, especially in, in a time of sort of uh, upheaval and disturbance and change, you know, are there things that we can do to help us sort of manage our our lives our careers and uh and get a little bit forward in this so phil i know you and i were talking about this a couple weeks ago is why is this a problem or is it a problem or why should anyone care 
Oh, I mean, I think we live, we're in a time, right, where it's a lot of disruption. I mean, you know, it's not, it's the pandemic, the way the pandemic affects the way we work, the way we work with each other. I think that's it. And, you know, there's, uh, I mean, it would be hard to ignore the just sort of, no matter where you live in the world, the sort of political upheaval that's also part of where we are, right? So I think we're living in some times where somehow we approach the world can be challenged and challenging in trying to figure out how do we uh, get ourselves uh, anchored in this time and sort of so that, you know, we become kind of the rock. We understand where we're going. We understand what we're up to, um, even when there's just a lot of stuff, a lot of obstacles thrown at us. It just seems different to me at this moment. So I think this is a, this is a good time to kind of consider some of the ancient philosophies, some of the old ways of thinking and figure out how can we apply this to where we are? Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I see that as sort of um, something, you know, that, it, I mean, it applies in a lot of different contexts, right? Certainly at the level of just trying to be better human beings, right? That That's one. Um, specifically, though, when it comes to sort of, you know, um, consulting or maybe things like, you know, um, business architecture, IT architecture, living in, you know, a business technology world that's driven by change and we're making everything digital. Um, I mean, Nathan, I know you recently gave sort of a, a, a talk on this topic, right, of sort of the changes that are, are coming about, the relationship sort of between business, society, individuals, um, and, and how consultants, architects, right, could sort of, you know, uh, navigate that and, and be aware of it. Um, what, what are some of your thoughts on this? Because I watched that talk and I thought it was pretty fascinating. Hey, thanks. Um... So, uh, so I described myself at the beginning as a curious cyborg um, because uh, that was um, the term cyborg or we're all cyborgs now was a term uh, coined by Elon Musk a few years ago uh, to describe our relationship now with technology. And technology really is, represents our tools as, um, uh, as, as homo sapiens. So, so what's kind of different about digital is the way it's um, created much more of a, a permeable line between us and our tools to the point where now, uh, much like with the cyborg, the, the joins are much harder to perceive. And, uh, and that means that for us, our tools are, are becoming much less something external to our sense of personal identity, but much more part of uh, our identity and controlling the, uh, the, in, the interfaces that we have with the rest of the world. And you have, you know, so you have that through concepts such as the attention economy, whereby uh, effectively, uh, you know, uh, I get a report on my children's screen time because uh, my wife and I worry about how much time they spend on the screen versus interacting with nature and other things. And what that report tells me is that I'm spending 10 hours a day on my devices. My wife's spending 10 hours a day on her devices. So that then started the conversation, well, is it the kids who've got a problem or is it us who are the addicts? Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that to me is fascinating. I, I'm not sure what those metrics would look like in this house. I, you know. Uh, does it record for a full 24 hours or, you know, would that be on the report? Cause I think that's what, that's probably what we would have here. It's a rolling, yeah, it's a rolling, it's a rolling report. 
uh, that uh, Apple provide as uh, automatically, and you can break it down uh, into per app per minute. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, so uh, look, you know, and I get it as parents, I get it as you know, consultants. Carol, you work with leaders that that are ostensibly leading all of us in sort of this change and this through this momentous time. You know, what are what are they saying to you, or what what are you advising them to do? Because the things that Nathan's talking about, right, cry out for sort of the type of framework that that Phil's talking about. You know, we we need some way to sort of stitch this together and, and manage it. Well, we've created a 24-hour accessibility and, and there can be this mentally perceived need that we have to then answer that call 24 hours. My favorite answer actually came from a global CEO who was asked by his vice president, how do you manage work-life balance? And he said, during the week, I put in 12-hour days and on the weekends, I unplug. And you have to come to a place in your life where you just unplug because it doesn't stop. And so we have to find a place for for it to stop. And in terms of helping our clients get into how do we do this, he was he was just great. He said, do what you think is right. And if what you think is right gets you in trouble, decide if this is where you want to work because it becomes such an ethical question. And I love, Nathan, that you're bringing up that you're not just looking at your kids' numbers, that your own numbers popped out because I actually think that kids do a whole lot more. And this is the old, you know, they watch what we do much more than listen to what we say. I think employees are the same way. If they see a, you know, bananas CEO running around or any level of executive running around 24 seven, who sends them emails at three o'clock in the morning and, and does all of these things, you are just, you are feeding the problem. And so at some point we have to decide who are we and put a stake in the ground and then let technology see where it fills in the gaps. Easier said than done. Nathan, you, you're, and I apologize, I didn't see this talk that Chris had referenced, but I'm curious about your take. I mean, I get it. We are connected to our computers in a way that we've never been before, right? We are concerned about retaining our humanity, if that's in fact what we want to do, right? And retaining our humanity when we do that thing. Um, but, you know, there's obvious, I mean, we wouldn't be doing this, we think, at one level, if there weren't benefits, right? I'm smarter than I ever was, right? Because now I have a supercomputer in my pocket. I can ask questions, not of my inner self, but of my Google to answer things. And I can basically know things that have ready access to facts and things that I never had access to before. But I have tons of concerns, right? We know that there is... A, a fallacy attached to algorithmic thinking, right? That the algorithms frequently have, they've got biases built inside that can kind of lead us down the wrong path. I'm kind of curious about what you thought first were the concerns of this uh, more than casual interface that we have with our computers. So it's interesting you talked about uh, the concept of individual empowerment because that is something that I did cover on the talk. Um, and and the fact that, you know, with our smartphones now, we're like comic book characters from the 1970s. Yeah. If you, you know, if you put us in a leotard and a cape, and that might not look great on, on all of us, but but certainly I'm, I'd, I'd worry about that personally. Um, but, but in terms of kind of, you know, our abilities that we have today, to your point, Phil, with a smartphone, we wouldn't look out of place in a comic book from the 1970s. 
So, so there's a there's a, been a huge revolution for the individual in terms of personal empowerment through digital technology, and 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 to the point where uh, I would describe it as 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 an addiction. It's an addiction of stimulation, and uh, and the idea being that that we would somehow be less without that device now. Yeah. So there's an element now, and, and it came up in education during the pandemic, where basically I, I read a few articles around how poorer children were doubly disadvantaged during the pandemic, not because they just weren't attending school, because they didn't have access to the same level of digital tools right. that our children from more prosperous households had, or where those children, like my son, has a smartphone. I, can I jump in here and ask you a question kind of in that same um, area, Nathan? What is, in your studies of this, don't you think that there's also a sense of importance that has come up out of, of self-importance and to a point of delusional of how relevant we are, how needed we are, how urgent everything is, and it needs our attention immediately? Uh, so, so, I, but I, so, yes, I think that's linked to the idea of, of attention, though. So, so, one of the things that my daughter complains about uh, fairly consistently is that she's competing with my digital devices for my attention. Mm. And uh, it took me probably a few weeks to accept as an adult that she was spot on. She was absolutely in a competition for my attention. And so for once that became a point of realization, I then started to realize that um, maybe the reason I'm not getting the attention from other individuals that I might want to get is because I too am competing with their digital tools and devices. Um, so I think the need, there's a, there's a need, we all have a need for, uh, you know, uh, self-affirmment uh, from the tribe. Right. Yeah. We all have a need to feel uh, accepted by the tribe. Uh, that, that's, that's kind of pretty fundamental part of anthropology. And so I see really a lot of activity on social media as an extension of that, where we are looking for um, uh, an acknowledgement of ourselves as, as in some way having an individual identity that is worthy, that is notable uh, and accepted. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the dopamine hits we get from likes, notifications, so I like I understand that then in the context of like the family setting, right? Because you know, we want to spend more time with our, our family and you know, we are competing, you know, amongst each other for those dopamine hits um off of you know the Facebook, uh things of that nature. Um <laughs> I just you need know, you to like me. Please, please like, like me. Like <laughs> subscribe, subscribe and like friends. <laughs> <laughs> um and you know, so I, I get that. How how does that present itself in the work context, in the business context. Isn't it not 
clear that either you have been in rooms where there are people clamoring for attention, clamoring for wanting to, to sort of suck the air out of the room or bring it to them, right? It's the subscribe and like to me and my ideas component in this space, as opposed to saying, hey, let's collaborate on this. Let's figure out where we're going. And maybe I've got something to contribute and maybe I don't. Maybe my silence and listening is the thing that's most useful here. But I, I think we don't get it. And I've certainly been in spots just like, Oh my God, if that dude would just stop talking, I think the room would figure the problem out. Was it, was that me? (laughs) (laughs) Was it you? But the thing is among us, right? We can point that out, right? Among us, you guys, hold on a second. Oh, you know, there's that, there's that bit. But I mean, I think in a professional environment, I've certainly been at where there were people that were, again, you know, this is sort of a, it's a bit of sophistry, I think, right? I mean, one of the thing about algorithmic, algorithmic thinking is that we want to capture everybody's attention. We want to be the center of that thing, the hub of each one of these, right? We're each trying to build the tribe in every room we walk into. At least there are some that I see doing that. And the question is, does that make sense? Is that useful? Is that the human natural thing to do in this? And, and what should we be valuing? I, I, I think that is how I see it. I think that I can see people grabbing attention when it would just be better to say, let's have a conversation about this. You're absolutely spawned, Phil, in terms of um, individuals. I think some of the behaviors that may be aren't new that we've all seen together in meeting rooms in large corporate buildings. Maybe some of those behaviors are just a bit more transparent on a Zoom call. Yeah, I I find they're more transparent on a Zoom call. I don't know necessarily whether all the behaviors are, are new per se. I think maybe also the pandemic may have heightened that because, you know, compare the amount of interpersonal interaction that we all are used to experiencing so how much we've necessarily had this year i know i've had a lot less personal interaction this year with people than i've had in previous years and that that's not good for us as human beings we are social animals yeah we you know so that means for me i find a lot of zoom uh a lot of zoom calls well sorry this one but a lot of zoom calls i find there's there's a, a different balance between the actual topic of the call, the purpose of the call, and social grooming. There's much more social grooming on calls than I'd associated with that same meeting given in a in a meeting room in a large corporate building. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing or a good thing, but I do think, to your point, Phil, it's a, it's a byproduct of where we are at the moment. And the medium. I think that the tech may actually help a little bit because if you think about being in a in a room with all type A number ones, you know, listen to me, look at me, they all talk over each other, right? You know, I mean, we've been in those meetings where it's like there's another conversation going on at the other end of the conference table. It's like, come on. Whereas, you know, Zoom or whatever, right? WebEx, whatever it is, Teams, that the it says it's duplex. But I don't think it really is that good at sort of capturing bi-directional conversations so that you end up with like really only one person can talk at any one given time. Otherwise, and, and the ability, of course, how great would it be in real life to just be able to mute somebody? <laughs> <laughs> I would implement that in my house immediately. <laughs> you know, aside, I guess aside from 
the tools that we have at our disposal that maybe 10 years ago we didn't have or they weren't quite as good. You know, what what are the what are the mental models? How do we approach this? Because, you know, Phil, when when you think about like, for example, stoicism, right? And it's like this this idea that, you know, I can control me, right? I can't control the idiot on the Zoom call that is talking over everyone or or whatever it might be. Uh, and there, wow, there's a pile of questions inside that. Yeah, yeah. I think I know what you did. That was quite a ball. Phil, pick one. Um, that's, I mean, it's, it, you know, we started off this whole thing. It's like, we're kind of a trying time. And I think part of this is that, you know, this whole universe of trying to get to the subscribe and like, and how to attract attention to ourselves. How do we find, you know, this was to Nathan's point in a tribe, we are looking for affirmation. We are looking for significance within our tribe, right? That's one of the things we're trying to do. And it's, can be kind of hard and we can feel like it's lost. We've lost our sense of place. So how can we find ourselves, you know, how can we find a spot to make ourselves kind of with, to be able to act with some equanimity? And I think it requires a real rigor, right? An emotional and intellectual rigor to kind of get through this moment. And this is one of the reasons I say, I think that stoicism has some answers in that space, right? There's some good ideas in there because quite frankly, those ideas, you know, we talk about them being from stoicism, right? But then they wrap themselves into our ABT and now they're really core into cognitive behavioral therapy. It was just awesome. Just uh, this week, I was listening to a radio program where someone was trying to help people navigate their way through the pandemic. I wasn't listening to it five minutes till the person quoted Epictetus, right? And it was like, poof, here we are. We, and the whole point was, we have to figure out what we can control, focus on that, you know, that's sort of the stoic work, focus on the stuff that we have control and kind of let the stuff go. So if you don't want, you know, if you say, look, I don't believe in ancient Greeks or Romans and all that kind of stuff, or I don't want to, uh, that stuff I don't quite get. This is a evidence-based therapy technique that's used today. Focus on the stuff you can control and let go of the stuff that you can't. So that's kind of like, I mean, Carol brings this up and I know that she sees this a lot because she talks to a lot of people all over the world, right? And you have kids and cats and stuff, you know, and I'm sitting here talking to you and I got two cats scratching at a door over there and I'm sitting there thinking, how do I keep my head in the game with these people when I have two actual cats trying to tear down a door 10 feet away from me, right? Uh, that's the real world. Guess what? I'm going to decide at the moment I've got no control over it. those two cats. What I have control over is me, my head in and of this moment. And it's super hard to do. It requires discipline and practice. But if I can get a hold of that, I can go, wow, I am not the universe's caretaker. And uh, I don't get to control everything. I don't get to fix everything. All I get to work on is me and my stuff. And I, I've that's my own zone of control. So that's why I think that in this idea, this whole idea, just that one idea of the stoic fork is super helpful in getting through. It's kind of a tough time. I want to I talk more about that in just a second. But Nathan, I'm curious, like, is what Phil just said in your view, you know, what do you think based on the talk that you gave, based on um, some of the, the, the writing that you've done right around this idea of sort of the the changing relationship between business and people, would any of that help? I'm going to say yes and no. Um, I'll explain the, the no part first. That's a classic uh, consultant hedge. I love it. That's great. I get paid for both answers. <laughs> yeah. Can I have a third, a middle tier? Can I have a middle option, please, sir? Yes. So, um, so 
One of the things, and it's from the research, my research background, one of the things that I, um, I sort of shared with the uh, IASA global community was the fact that a lot of things that people see as um, undesirable systems or problems or examples of, uh, of bad behavior all of those things are eminently predictable human behaviors. So, you know, Phil made reference earlier to biases within algorithms. Those are our biases. The patterns within algorithms, they are our patterns. All our tools represent our patterns that we have observed or imagined in the world. So the idea that somehow we're going to be able to turn the clock back on the attention economy, that we're going to put down our smartphones, that actually this journey we're on as curious cyborgs is going to stop. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case. So I think um, I think very much the opposite. However, to, to Phil's point, where we do have a level of control and where I think there's a bit of a tension actually is we have control on our, on on those relationships that we have, on our response to the stimulation that our uh, digital devices provide us, um, which is back to kind of Covey's classic thing about you know you control. There's a gap between stimulation and response, and that gap is the bit that you control. The challenge for us is that you've got companies such as Google who have functions within their corporations called behavioral attention engineering function. So this is a group of people whose job it is to work out, Phil, we're gonna we're gonna try and find a way to stop you being reflective, to stop you being able to um take a step back and have a pause because that means we don't have your attention. And if we don't have your attention, that means you're also not looking at our advertising. And that means we're not going to get as much money for that advertising. So there is a tension, I would say, uh, here in terms of the, 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 the parts of our brain that digital technology particularly looks to plug into um, that makes self-discipline harder. But that doesn't make it less important. It makes it more important because actually we, as human beings, we are losing the skill of self-discipline yes. through the use of our digital tools because we are, because of the convenience they provide. Convenience um, uh, dilutes self-discipline necessarily. Because we we are not we are being conditioned not to have the patience to wait for satisfaction. Yeah, and I, I mean I, you know, I see that or I have seen that in the past at, in client engagements. Right, when you're dealing with a solution, well, you know, I want to see the value. Where's the value? Show me the value immediately. Right, it's that whole. I, I need results. I need outcomes. I need. There's no. Um, there's, there's not always time given to what problem are we trying to solve here? 
why are we doing these things that we're doing? Why, you know, why are we approaching it in this fashion? It always seems to be buy the tool, bang out as much stuff as you can, right? And, and show me the money kind of stuff. So I, like, I kind of look at this and I wonder, so stoicism is one approach. Are there other things? Carol, I'd like to know what you think. Are there other, I don't know, philosophies, religions, spiritualities, whatever, right, that could be brought to bear on this? And whether that's in your personal life or in your business relationships. Well, you know, right now, Netflix just came out with a series of five coaches talking about, it's called the Coaches Playbook. Cannot suggest enough that people watch this because this brings together the world of here are the rules I live by and I need to produce high performance results. So it's not about you can't have business because to Nathan's point, the, the problem with those, those engineers, those brain engineers, is that our clients want it too. And the ethical question kind of comes up, but everybody's chasing a bottom line. And so you have to figure out where those pieces collide. But there was one particular one. The, the coach, is, his name is Doc Rivers, and he took the, the um, Boston Celtics, which is a basketball team, into a championship. And he was introduced to a group, a, a philosophy called Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U. And it is defined as humanity toward others. And the whole idea is I am because we are. And when the person who introduced him to this said, this isn't a just a philosophy, this is a lifestyle. And it's all about as I lift you, I lift me. And I think that whether you're doing that with technology, whether you're doing that with kindness, whether you're doing that in the smallest of ways, and he gives a story where he got onto the team playing and he had a hamburger for himself. And one of his players said, well, that's not very Ubuntu. You didn't bring in anything. You didn't bring everything for all of us. And he was really excited that he had that response because that meant that they were really buying in at a very large level. But he said, this is about living this way. And I think that this is what we're looking at. And it's going to be, how are we doing business? How are we living? How are we raising our children from this place of ethical accomplishment? Because we're going to need both in order to stay in the game. By the way, Ubuntu is a fantastic operating system as well. Um, so I just want to throw that out there. Ah, well, yeah. I, I so think the point go. that you missed is that Carol had to explain to us who the Celtics are. <laughs> I, I thought that was just You know, the awesome. reason I did that is because we have a global audience. And it's rude to sit here and talk about a local, well, what is a national sports team, if, if not everybody knows. So there yes, you go. Yes, of course. Of course. It's um, the man you of Boston. <laughs> the man you of Boston. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Well, we won't get, we won't yeah, get into the sports no, rivalries don't, there. Phil. Don't. Um, I didn't intend for that. I just loved it because, you know, someone explained basketball to me because I, I don't know anything about it. <laughs> I'm accustomed to global audiences and I never want anybody to feel excluded. I, I applaud you. I'm applauding you. I love that moment. That was a teachable moment. <laughs> um, uh, so, okay. So, Phil, I mean, do you buy into that? That, you know, there are, because he, here's where I'm thinking, right? I, I, I've dealt with over the years, sort of frameworks for dealing with, um, you know, management consulting problems, right? A two by two chart, a bubble chart, you know, a five box framework, or this framework, or that framework, um, and then from sort of the architecture perspective, especially in enterprise architecture, there's an 
ungodly amount of frameworks for this is how you should think about your business. And here's how you should think about how it should be structured. The three-dimensional cube, right? The this, the that, the layers, all these different, all different ways of trying to structure and organize um, information and your relationship to that information. And it never fails. And I know Nathan knows this too. It never fails that the, the person who creates one of those frameworks says, this is the framework that is universal and applies to everything. It will solve all your problems, right? Um, it's the proverbial bullet. silver bullet framework. Um, and they're all, they're all the same, right? In, in terms of, of going down that route. So what I want to know is, is there sort of a philosophical approach to this that is universal? Is it as simple as be a good person? Or is that just hippie BS? I mean, we, we like the idea of trying to figure out how to be a good human, right? But the thing is, you know, if there were just one answer for everything, right, there wouldn't be D&D, &D, 5E, and Pathfinder, right? We wouldn't, once again, have split these two things off. I mean, it just one language or another, it just is a thing like that. They just split. It just happens. Um, I don't know that there is one, you know, uh, you know, some philosophers say, look, this is what I believe. But if you show me a shorter path to the truth, I'll take the shorter path, right? And I'm okay with that, too. Uh, the thing is, I... I, you know, one of the reasons I like this conversation is I'm not sure that enough of us are having the conversation about is what we are doing right now good for humans. Well, well yeah, no, I, I get that, right? And, and I can understand where that kind of goes away because you're you're really thinking about what's good for me or what's good for my client or what's good in this situation and you're not stockholders taking, yeah you're not taking that sort of whole life sort of perspective on you know um is is this good for mankind and and you know i would like to think if i could go back in time and talk to my younger self just starting out in management consulting and say here are the things you're going to encounter political backstabbing burnout right all of these different things client uncooperative clients the travel schedule, all of this, weight gain, right? All, all of these things. Um, I would like to be able to say, but by the way, read this book on stoicism and it, you know, in, you know, in, ingest it and it will help you get through these problems. Yeah. But I'm not, I'm I, not I, sure I, that would happen. Like, is that true? Yeah, I don't know. So what's the right book and who would know? And maybe it changes along the way, right? right. I mean, for example, if someone said to me today, what's the one book that you think sort of encapsulate this? But it's of the moment, right? Every time these books are of the moment, right? They were trying to answer the question in and of their time within their historical context with what's going on. You know, right now, I would say it was uh, Darren Brown's book, Happy, right? I mean, in, in that book, I mean, basically, he takes a very philosophical, very syncretic approach to everything that's going on in the world and says, look, you've got to find some way for you to be a good performer and a good person in your space. And here is a, here is how I've considered a whole bunch of things to the point. I think that's a good book. That's a great on-ramp for this idea, right? Now, he's something of a stoic, but I didn't realize that when I got started with a book, I just thought it was a book on how can we get our way through the world. So I think it's something like that. I, but I don't know. I think, by the way, if I went back and talked to my 20 year old self, I wouldn't listen to me. I mean, that's the issue, right? right? I mean, I just, I wasn't prepared. You know, they say, um, this is a Zen thing, right? Uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. I think that's Zen. Mm -hmm. But uh, I wasn't ready as a student, right? I was 
I was running headlong towards something and I thought I knew what I was doing. And that was the issue, really. More than anything at the time, I thought I knew what I was doing. Uh, I didn't have that sense of, all right, let's kind of measure this. Let's figure this out. Would, would, a, would a framework have worked? I had a framework. I've abandoned a number of frameworks on my way to this point. Frameworks are just, um, they're almost like tools to aid your perspective. So they're not even masquerade, they're not even a solution, although sometimes they, they use to masquerade as a solution. They're actually aids to help you perceive a perspective towards a solution. So they're far more limited than the people selling you certification courses would like to make you believe. Um, and so ultimately it's about having a toolbox of frameworks because really what the framework is doing is it's encouraging you to reflect upon the perspective that you're taking. And the importance there is not the tool or the framework, it's the getting you to reflect. So it's the, the important thing is reflecting on the fact I should use a framework, not the actual framework itself. Yeah. And, and, there, and that, that to me is what's important. It's the reflection. Yeah. There's a re there is a real information problem part of this too, right? And, that, and I think, um, by the way, I think one of the great books on this topic is uh, Thomas Kuhn's 1962 book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he will put a point to it on the shelf over there, right? Yeah. But that's a book that just talks about, Chris, you remember, I mean, this whole thing is like, we're not ready the community is not ready for this breakthrough. And it takes basically a bunch of counter opposing facts to show up first. And then basically the old way of thinking gets hard and we end up with the new way of thinking. That's kind of his bit. And I get it. He's not without his, with folks yeah. uh, distracting. But the idea is that we're not always ready. And that was what I was saying when I said, as a student, I was not ready for some of these ideas. You know, Nathan's saying, I might need, I might need, a step ladder today, and I might need an extension ladder tomorrow, but the framework is going to change based on where I am in my own thinking. Yeah. And, um, you know, Thomas Kane also uh, created the word paradigm, right? As yeah, paradigm shift. Paradigm That's his, was and, his invention of, right. of phraseology. Um, on this topic, self-advertising, self because, you know, that's how I am. Um, I don't know, about 10 years ago, I wrote something about this because I was fuming at the, the use of sort of universal frameworks in architecture. It's called Franken frameworks, right? And basically this idea that it's exactly what you said, right? You know, I'm going to bring a toolkit, as Nathan said, right? I'm going to bring these things together and I'm going to have dozens of them and they may apply differently at different times. And yeah, one is a step ladder, one's an extension ladder, one is an extension cord and one's a leaf blower, right? And like right. they're apples, oranges, cats, dog, spaghetti, right? It's all different myths. And I'm going to apply them as needed uh, to get to get done what I need to get done. It's available on chrisonea.com, which is fine. <laughs> I'll send you a link. Send you a link. Well, and don't, like you, and subscribe. Think, don't um, you think we're, a framework also implies that you know what it is you need to make it adjustments to. Yes, so I go back to that, that documentary called the social, um, the social dilemma. And yeah. I don't know, Nathan, if you've had a chance, I, we've had chances to talk about that, but they talk about, I mean, here's the guy who invented the like button going, 
this was such a benign little thing. This was supposed to be happy. Look, hey, I like that. Oh, good. And now there, you know, there's a whole generation of people measuring their self-worth by likes. So I, I don't even know that you can say, what would the framework look like when I was 20? Would that have been the one that would carry me through? Because there are so many different pieces and I don't know that they would have hung the same way on that structure. No, I love yeah, that. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, I think that's a really good point, Carol, about in order to think that you've got the right tool, you need to already have the conceit that you are able to frame the problem in the first place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So one of the things in the talk I gave was in a digital world, it's very hard to see the, the boundaries. So, so, you know, I described us as, as, as basically rubbish cyborgs trapped in a black box where we now can't see the joins between uh, the, the, the choices that have been made for us in our digital world right. before we get the subset of choices presented to us. So there's, and this goes back then, I guess, Phil, to the ethical question you asked me earlier, which I sidestepped. Uh, being a good consultant, um, uh, which was uh, the the tension between I, Nathan the Curious Cyborg, with my smartphone of superpowers, um, and then the fact that what I've effectively done is I've traded in via a social contract that maybe I wasn't aware of a set of freedoms around the totality of choices that I could have made because in order to be this, this superhero uh, from the 1970s, because that part of the social contract in the digital age that you are making that trade-off. Uh, and so the question to ask is the degree to which us as individuals are reflecting on the trade-off that we've made. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my sort of final on this, right, is I think not unlike uh, building a slide deck, you know, where, you know, I start out thinking, you know, what am I, what do I want to say? And then, you know, I've got a thousand slide examples from previous lives of how I've said similar things in the past. And are any of them applicable, right, is sort of what I go through a mental checklist. And I think there's probably room to do that in other parts of your life because our lives are made up of prior experiences, right? Absolutely. There's very few things that a human being is going to encounter in life that no human being has ever encountered before, right? Kind right. of thing. Um, so I'd like to think that, you know, I've done some stuff in my past that maybe is applicable to some problem or something that I'm looking at now. I, I just, I haven't seen or I haven't found sort of the one big philosophy, right? The theory of everything for Chris Lockhart and how to govern his his business or consulting life or or personal life. That that would be my sort of takeaway from this. I don't know, Carol, what, what do you got on it? 
I think it's about staying present with it all. So when I go back to Nathan's early comments about looking at the analytics of his children's use of technology, which actually ended up highlighting his own use of technology. And I would suggest that we continue to have those conversations with our clients as we're throwing out solutions is making part of the decision. Well, we've also come up with what we think are some unintended consequences that might be social consequences. They're not about the bottom line, but they have this possibility. So as we're making that decision, this one might make less money, but has doesn't carry with it this, this social bomb encompassed in it. So my thoughts, I guess, are around the importance of reflecting that wherever you are now and whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're doing, it, it's all just part of a journey. Um, so the, the book that um, uh, I would say had a, a pretty fundamental influence on my life and definitely my favorite book is a book called Siddhartha by uh, a German author called Hermann Hesse. Um, and it's a book about, yeah, it's a great book. Um, and, and it's a book about, it's, I guess it's kind of rites of passage, but it, but it focuses upon how whatever you're doing and experiencing can feel so, um, so important in that moment. But the reality is, is that as you reflect, as you sort of reflect on your life and you step back, you really realize that that was just one step in that journey. Uh, and and the, actually the importance is the journey itself as opposed to that particular moment. And I think frameworks and the context around the use of frameworks uh, are exactly the same. And I think in terms of some kind of uh, belief system, I mean, obviously Siddhartha has its roots in Buddhism, but, but I think the, the great thing for me about both Buddhism, Stoicism and, and, and philosophy in general is, is it's the drive to reflect that is so valuable for us as individuals and societies in being able to uh, navigate this digital journey that we're all on. You know, the reason this matters for consultants, right, is that just as you pointed out, if you have been in this trade any length of time, and it really doesn't matter whether you're on the consulting side of this or the sales side of this, there has been one framework after another presented. You've seen lots of them sort of come and go and people have frameworks. So we're used to dealing inside this framework. What we're saying here is it's really time for you to think about a meta framework for you yourself and what does it mean to be a good human and how are you going to figure that out? And, you know, again, I'm not trying to be prescriptive here. I just think the idea of having some framework is a useful one. Uh, you know, it was Socrates that said the unconsidered life is not worth living. And I think that this is a, it is well worth us to spend some time doing it. Uh, but to, uh, to, uh, help Chris here and me, let's I'll end with a quote from Marcus Aurelius. And he says to work against one another in the meditations to work against one another is against human nature. So if you are doing things that are not helping to humans be humans, you need to be thinking about that. Find your own framework. That's my end thought. I love it. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan, for joining us um, from the Royal Observatory there. Um, and, uh, you know, Phil Yanoff, Carol Hamilton. I'm Chris Lockhart. Thank you, everyone. Um, check out the YouTube 
channel, subscribe, subscribe and like, attention economy. Um, maybe comment, uh, send us some questions or thoughts. But I appreciate it, everyone. We'll talk to everyone next time.